Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest for this episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate, I want to thank you, the listener, for participating and listening to my prior episodes and also wish you the best in, during these uh, downtimes during the pandemic and hope that you and your family are coping well through the crisis and that you will uh, be able to emerge once we're through this to more and better success in the future. So today I'm introducing Stanley Slaughter, who is the president and founder of Paradigm Companies, which is a diverse real estate organization that is in the construction, development, and property management business for multifamily apartments, primarily high-rise. And that's their specialty, which Stan has developed now uh, since the late 1980s when he moved to Washington from Pittsburgh area with the company called National Development Company, which then evolved to become Paradigm in 1991 during the crisis. And he took over the reins there and built his team from the initial two to three people that he had up to his current staff. He has uh, an annual $200 million a year construction business in one platform. He has an 8,000 unit property management portfolio in another platform and develops probably one to two projects per year for his ownership platform, the development business. So he has a diversified portfolio of businesses that allow for being able to manage through some of the cycles that we have in this business which is a very smart strategy, particularly now in difficult financial times. So I hope you enjoy this discussion. We talk about his family background and his interesting first business, which I'll save and let you listen to, which is fascinating. And then his uh, evolution through college into banking and then in the development business. So without further ado, here is Stan Slaughter. Welcome, Stan. Thanks for joining me today on the podcast. Great to be with you, John. Thank you. thought we'd start out with uh, a little bit of what you're doing today and what your role is at Paradigm, your company, mm-hmm. and uh, what you do today on a day-to-day basis and how you're looking at things. And maybe a little evolution on just a tad on your company's evolution and how your role has changed in the, in over the years. <laughs> All that in one, uh, one sentence, that'll be a lot, but uh, I'll do my best. Thanks, John. So my role at Paradigm, you know, Paradigm is a uh, diversified real estate company. We have a lot of real estate assets that we have developed over the course of time. And so we have a, a big effort to manage and maximize values on existing an existing portfolio of mostly multifamily properties. We have a construction company that does... Uh, 
200 million ish a year in general contracting work and a property management company that manages 8,000 ish units. And then a development company that is still in the business of acquiring, but mostly uh, acquiring land and doing ground up development of multifamily properties. So our business is, uh, and has been for a long time, sort of diverse across those, those areas. We recently, and we can talk about this a little more later, you know, rolled everything up into a holding company. And so my official role is I am still primarily involved in the development business day to day, but our real role is really to sort of be the chief executive of the holding company, which is sort of try to set up systems and, and people and, and stuff of each of these various companies to keep, the, uh, to keep them all running, keep them all profitable sort of individually. And so your role is to kind of oversee all these these different entities then. That's right. I mean, I you know, sort of the capitalization and the and the management of those the various issues that come up from a management standpoint, not the day-to-day management, but the strategic management of those assets and those companies. And, you know, so you spend most of your time working on, you know, a problem here or there. We have very strong people running each of these companies and very I uh, wouldn't imply that I do a lot of real work. But uh, <laughs> but I'm usually <laughs> usually involved at some level. That's interesting. We'll talk a little bit more about that uh, a little mm-hmm. later on. I want to get into the origin story of, of that company and how it evolved and why why you're doing it the way you're doing it today. Sure. But I want to now switch into kind of where we are today in this environment, this uh, pandemic uh, worldwide, and talk about the comparison of this crisis that we're in now to earlier crises that, that you and I both have been through in our careers mm-hmm. over the years, how you see it playing out and predict potentially, if you're bold enough, to predict on what you think will look like on the other side of this, and then kind of based on your experience and, and, your, and also your worldview of, what, of how things look, and kind of comparing it a little bit to the other crises and how this might be a little different than those or similar in your own view. Yeah, it's it's interesting, John. It's a, obviously a time that we're all struggling to think about how we work our way through this and how we work our way to the other side and what the world's going to look like. And so, day to day, we are in the housing business. So you, we are we operate essential services, right? So even the construction companies have been deemed essential in all the jurisdictions that we operate. So we have construction people building buildings every day, mostly high rise buildings in urban areas. And we've got an awful lot of uh, property management people who are showing up to work every day and trying to rent apartments in a safe manner and so on and so on, but mostly dealing with a lot of residents who are staying at home and trying to produce good, safe places for people to live and communities that people want to be in 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 very difficult circumstances. And so the first thing I'd say about the whole thing is that, you know, we operate in a business that is operating. So while they tell everybody to stay home and there's a lot of people who can, an awful lot of the people at Paradigm are the people who can't, are the people who've got to figure out how to get to work and how to satisfy customers and how to perform their job in a safe manner. And so there's an awful lot of day-to-day issues to grapple with, you know, as, as residents get tested positive, as other things happen in these uh, construction site or so on. And then we got to deal with all those because, you know, our businesses can't really shut down. That's both the good news and the bad news, obviously, about that. From a longer-term perspective, then, you know, we're like everybody else. We're trying to decide how the world will unwrap itself from its current condition. 
And the things that I worry about, John, is, is how is it going to change the way we use real estate? You know, I think if you were in the, if you were in the hotel business, <laughs> you know, you'd worry a lot about that, but you'd have hopes that people eventually are going to travel again and stay in hotels. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're in the office business or in some of the other retail businesses and so on, you know, I think people are really worried about the structural change yes. that this might drive, you know, as people figure out how to work from home and figure out, you know, what they're doing and so on and so on. Does that really translate into lessening demand for certain types of office space? Does that translate into different locations for office spaces? We are, I mean, one of our big risks, you know, we operate in a, you know, we're transit oriented. Every, almost everything we own is on a metro station and, mm-hmm. and relies on the fact that people will mostly pay a little bit of a premium to be in really good urban locations with lots of other people where they can jump on a train and zip their way to downtown. And when are, are, are people going to be comfortable getting on a metro train? Is that whole strategy going to be a viable strategy over the course of time? I think it will. In other words, I think we will get back to something closer to normal where people figure out how to commute to, to work safely and so on and so on. But it really is something to worry about as to whether these worries about viruses and so on changes behavior in such a way that, you know, the entire country's focus on transit-oriented development and transit-oriented, you know, walkable sure. communities and all that stuff becomes different than, than it was expected. So we, we worry about all that stuff. But if you ask me to, to predict, my prediction is at the end of the day, that the numbers will save us. In other words, that eventually we, as a society, grapple with, you know, what kind of numbers we're really talking about in terms of infection rate, what kind of people are really at risk, and we eventually get ourselves comfortable that we can go about our lives because the numbers are not so severe that they would cause us to, to do something else. But that's a hope more than a, um, mm-hmm. than a reality. And I think those numbers, as I say, the numbers, I mean, the numbers of really bad outcomes when you apply the treatments that are being applied, when you try the other things that are being developed to fight this virus, you know, if people get comfortable that their likelihood of really dying of this illness and so on and so on is pretty remote, then the hope would be that we would return to something something more normal. But that may be my hope speaking as opposed to my, because I think none of us really know if that's, if that's likely. Let me go to more of day-to-day issues real quick. How has your uh, collections gone so far? <laughs> and what's your feeling about that going forward here in the next couple months? Well, the good news is we're in a good spot. And Washington, D.C. is fantastic. We do have a tremendous number of white-collar people who can work from home. Our collections in our high-rise communities, which most of our communities are high-rises, were almost indistinguishable from March uh, in terms of collections for April. So that's really good news. Now, nobody knows what's going to happen in May, but we'll see. In our some of our affordable communities, we operate some communities or some affordable units within our market mm-hmm. rate communities, and then uh, some communities are more focused on affordable units. Those communities are much harder hit-ish or at least the residents are, I'll say, taking advantage of, of what they perceive to be an opportunity to 
not pay their rent. You know, the, the jurisdictions have told them they won't be charged a late fee and they can't be evicted. And so I don't know. We're going to find out how much of that is really because they, they were working at a, a location that's closed and they've been laid off. Their unemployment hasn't kicked in and so on and so on. How many of those people will pay? I don't know. But I, I, I do think that the Washington area will fare much better than a lot of the rest of the country in terms of that, at least in the short run. You know, the intermediate long run is a little different question, but I think we're doing okay for the moment. So do you see this as similar to, say, the post-9-11 period or the uh, early 90s recession or the 2008, you know, issue? Uh, those are the three big ones that I think of that affect sure. Washington significantly. And, and they're all their own stories. You know, the, yep. 90, the early 90 recession was really an overbuilding and overvaluation recession related to the uh, Tax Act in 86. You know, the 9-11 downturn in uh, real estate really related to demand. So if one was a supply problem, uh, after 9-11, it was demand. All the corporate users in the district and areas left on the same day, which was the equivalent of, you know, making a 10% vacancy across the market. Well, you know, the, the reality is our rents just went down. But the business didn't really change very much. Mm-hmm. You know, we just operated with lower rents. Now, if you were on the edge, that would be very consequential. But if you weren't on the edge, then you were able to just soldier your way, way through those recessions. And the same in 2009, you know, we had a big momentary change in valuations and cap rates and so on and so on. But for stable operating properties, it was like the stock pricing change and the dividend, you know, the stock price going up or down while the dividend that company was paying remained the same. Well, if you weren't selling, that didn't cost you a lot. But there, right. you know, the development business has an awful lot of people in the buying and selling business all the time. And so it was very clear, you know, that that segment of the business was certainly hurt, but the operating piece of the business, you know, not so much. So, I think it's very different. I, I really do think it's different because of the fundamental issues that I was talking about, which is if you really do have a, a fundamental shifting of where people want to live and how people want to transport themselves to business and how many businesses need people to come in every day of the week, you know, that could have really global effects Major. on, on yeah. our business over, over the course of time, which is, which is different. And I think there's just a lot of uncertainty about that. Well, thank you, Stan, for that perspective. Let's uh, let's go back, go in the wayback machine here. Tell me about your uh, origins, where you grew up, and uh, how you uh, how your parents brought you up, and all that good stuff, and a little bit about your family. I'll give you the the, the quick version. I, I grew up in Central Pennsylvania, had two hardworking parents, and and all the rest. Neither of whom uh, went to college. Very wonderful upbringing in the sense of you know just straightforward, hardworking stuff. We lived in a community that was like us. You know, my mother actually was always a little bit entrepreneurial, always was, was doing things to try to earn a little side money and so on. And I, I learned a lot of my entrepreneurial stuff, I think, came from, from her side of the family. I started my first business when I was 16. Really? And uh, yeah, so I, I, I bought a, <laughs> who knows why, I bought a machine that would paint parking lots. You know, paint, the stri- paint the stripes on parking lots and, <laughs> and uh, began to, uh, I'll tell you the story quickly. And, and, you know, we painted parking lots all over the place. We, it took us a while. We had 
we didn't know how much it was going to cost. I bid a bunch of jobs and lost a bunch of money and so on, but eventually figured out how to do it and how to get some work. And then eventually got hired or got hired. got a couple of contracts with the AMP, which was a big grocer based in Altoona. Uh-huh. And so they actually hired us to to paint all their parking lots in their region, which was 140 parking wow. lots. Wow! And so uh, <laughs> by the uh, by the summer of my 16th year, I was a a mogul in in Altoona. You know, it was, it was a you know I had a I had bought a van. I had hired all my friends. You know, oh and th- this this was back when you know a couple of buckets of chicken and some cream soda, and we were set. <laughs> we, we would. Uh, we would go out and work all night, driving all over Pennsylvania and Maryland and so on, painting parking lots. I didn't have a, uh, you know, I only had a junior driver's license at the time, but uh, we had just a ball and, and did a lot of work and, and a lot of fun. But I'll tell you the end of that story quickly because it's the, it's the good part. So I went back to high school, of course, in the normal course. I was a senior. And early in the next year, I got a call from the guys at the AMP because they had to send me you know, tax information on all the money they had paid me. Now, I, I will be honest, most of the money went to buying the paint. But, and, you know, we had correspondence. This was all through the mail and, and stuff like that. There was no face-to-face meetings with these guys. And they wanted to, you know, they just needed information. They needed my tax ID number and they needed various stuff because they, they, you know, I didn't have any of that stuff. And they wanted, and so they eventually called me in for a meeting. And so I went down to meet with them and they were just guys at the, you know, at at a grocery store, but at the big corporate headquarters. But as far as I was concerned, it was the IRS itself, you know, (laughs) meeting with me. And they they walked me through the contract that I signed where I represented that I had paid all my employees their withholding. Of course, I hadn't where I had bought insurance, which, of course, I hadn't, um, (laughs) um, you know, all these different things. And, you know, I was uh, sitting in their office, you know, and my hair was somewhat long. I was a, I was a wrestler, but, I, but you know, it was, it was the time it was. And, and after some period of time, they finally asked me, you know, they were, they were clearly very unhappy. Uh, and they said, you know, how old are you? <laughs> and I said, well, I, I'm, I'm 17. I was 17 then. And they said, and now, so little did I know that sentence, all of my problems just became their problems, right? Because at 17, I wasn't even old enough to sign a contract. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The contract um, wasn't that um, You're a minor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and so, <laughs> you know, I walked into that meeting thinking that, you know, I, I was, you know, I'm going to say I was, uh, at least in my own mind, pretty successful as a parking lot painting company. And they asked me, um, and, and, and expected in the summer that was coming up, I was getting ready to go to work. I was getting ready to bid jobs and go back to work. And they asked me, they said, what are you going to do when you get down with high school? They, I told them I was a senior. And I said, well, I don't know. I said, until a minute ago, I was going to be in the line painting business. They said, look, you're not going to be in the business. And I said, well, you know, I got these guys from a college that have been calling me. They want me to go wrestle for this little college in Pennsylvania, like Coming. And they said, look, if you agree not to pay any more parking lots and you agree to go to college, then we'll forget the whole thing. And so (laughs) that seemed like a really good idea to me at Uh the moment. And so off I went. And that was sort of really the kick that I needed probably to get myself to college. 
which sounds funny, of course, in a world where all of our kids go to college. But uh, so you your, know, parents, I, your parents, your parents encouraged you to do this uh, this entrepreneurial thing. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, my parents were very supportive of all the crazy things you do like that, right, and they, right. they were they were very supportive of it. But you know, it wasn't their thing; it was completely my thing. But they weren't pushing you to college or anything like that. They oh, saying, no, 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 not really. Go do this and see what happens, you know? Yeah, yeah not yeah. really. Exactly. And certainly my, neither my sister or brother went to college. And, uh, you know, which we've talked about many times over the course of the year. But it just wasn't, I'm just going to say, in, in those communities, the community I lived, it wasn't an expectation right. that, that folks would go to college. And so mm-hmm. I, was a very, I was a very lucky thing. And it ended up going up to Lycoming, which is where I, went to, where I ended up going to school. Great. So what did you learn there that you enjoyed? Uh, you know, uh, I'll tell you one quick story about Lycoming. So Lycoming uh, was a great central Pennsylvania school. I, I went, as I said, to wrestle, but all the wrestlers were, you know, they all were, as far as I was concerned, were majoring in things. And I wanted to major in something that would distinguish myself. So I ended up majoring in chemistry. And, and I majored in chemistry mostly because I could do chemistry. And, you know, when you told people you were a chemistry major, you know, most people said, wow, that's great. And so I really didn't give a thought to what I was going to do until I was a junior in college. And I got a, I got an internship as a, with Merck, which is a big right. chemical manufacturer up in Pennsylvania. And I went over there and I spent six weeks or something like that in the summer. And the only thing I was sure of at the end of that experience, when I actually thought about working, was I didn't want to be in chemistry. Um, so, sometimes you have to learn what you don't want to do yeah, exactly and, I'm saying, and, and for that reason uh, we, we've had an internship program here at Paradigm for, for 30 years because you know I always support I take on you know 10 or 12 interns every summer uh-huh. because I just think that experience is so valuable that was a big big experience for me I went back my senior year of college and took you know freshman accounting and so on and I knew that I really wanted to be in a business type program and then went straight from college, went straight afterwards and went and got an MBA from the University of Pittsburgh because I sort of realized that I, I needed to be at least in business. And so off I went. But Lycoming was a great place to go. It was really a great college for kids like me. You know, they still are. I, I chair the board of the college now and uh, still a great school for first generation college students. Still does cool. a great job with those kids. Yeah. You went to get your MBA. Did you have a kind of a career path in mind at that time, or, or was I, it? I did not. You know, I, I did not. I, I got my MBA and I went to work for Pittsburgh National Bank. So I went to work in the banking business and went straight into their management training program. So again. Why banking? Did finance interest you, or what? What was it that uh... they, they would hire me? I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I interviewed with a bunch of different people. I had a, you know, an MBA. It was 1980, and you know, finances. But I, I interviewed with a with Westinghouse and a couple of different people. But sure. the bank had a training program, and I went into the training program with no particular designs. Assumed because I had this science based undergraduate degree yeah. that I would end up in some technical aspect of the bank. You know, some some lending having to do sure. with oil and gas or coal. Industrial. Or like yeah. mm-hmm. But I didn't know what I wanted to do at all. And, and by sheer luck, they sent me to the real estate group. So they sent me to the um, real estate 
component of the bank. And uh-huh. I spent my early career, first couple of years, learning the real estate business. Prime was 21%. The world had come to an end oh, yeah. at that point in time. And, uh, and I was in the real estate group. So again, when I say this, you know, the no vision, <laughs> there's no vision involved. You know, uh, it's where I ended up and it was, uh, it turned out to be perfect for me. You know, I love the people. I love the entrepreneurship of the industry as a whole and ended up uh, leaving the bank to go to work for one of my customers, which was national development. That's where I met you, you know, just three and a half years later. So I was only at the bank for a few years. So did you actually lend or were you doing workouts during that time? Uh, well, it was mostly workouts. That's uh, what I thought. Yeah. You know, early, early on, it was mostly workouts in 1984-ish. You know, we were starting to lend again and the bank actually sent me to Florida to be in a loan production office. So I was really lending down there. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a different world, but that's what I, one of my customers, National Development was a customer and we lent a lot of money to them over the course of time. And they're the guys who ultimately hired me. Talk about NDC. What did they do and what was their So, So National was really a a subsidized housing producer. They did Mm -hmm. affordable housing through a lot of the FHA programs all over the place. And in the late 80s, or late 80s, I mean, in the mid-80s, I said just before the Tax Act got approved, Mm -hmm. their opinion, Seymour Baskin, who ran that firm, was that their business, their historic business, which was doing these tax shelter syndicated housing projects was going to come to an end and that they had to figure out how to do business in the market, in the market economy. And I, for reasons I didn't understand at the time, was was perfect as far as he was concerned because I was young, I was going to work hard, and I wasn't wrapped up in all of that affordable housing syndication world that they were wrapped up in. And so they actually literally at 26 years old, hired me to open a development office in Washington, D.C. So they hired me to come to Washington. Really? And I was all by myself. They gave me $100,000 in 12 months. The $100,000 was for everything. It was for my office, my salary, my secretary if I wanted one, whatever it was. I had $100,000 in 12 months to try to get a project started. And that's how I started. So it was, uh, it was quite, it was quite an adventure, but it was quite fun. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing, and I was very lucky again. But National had a lot of skills. National was a very good contractor. National was a construction company, and they were very good at it. And we, I used the their capacity to control their construction costs to initiate a project where. You know, we were going to deliver the project for a substantial discount versus what things were costing to build at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And so capital sources were willing to look at that and say that that aspect, which is the fact that we could, we could deliver the product at a great basis, enabled it, it to be financed. And so that's how we got our stuff done. And, and that's where I learned the construction business. It was really a, a great company in that regard. It's interesting because your roots... And in, in going back to 16 years old, you were, you were on a job, you mm-hmm. know, basically doing job work like that yeah. from back yeah. then. So this all kind of comes full circle in a way because uh, you're doing jobs now even. So, it, uh, it, it does. And, you know, and the reality is the people who do real work, there's a commonality between them and an 
aspect of which I get along with that we sort of understand each other. You sort of understand the the, the joy and, and the satisfaction that comes from doing those kind of jobs. And, and uh, it is all the same. The construction business is, um, is a good one, but it's always been a strength of paradigm, which is our ability to control costs. Right. So that, that is followed. So it came out of that philosophy that NDC exactly. gave you. And exactly. being able to, to build less than other people can as far exactly. as doing the construction and, and that. So, Obviously, in the affordable housing sector, that's a big component, I'd have to assume, is to be able to manage costs. To those, guys were very, exactly, yeah. those guys were very focused on cost control. You know, over the course of time, it became more and more clear to me, it had less to do with really controlling the costs in the construction phase than it did to controlling the cost during the design phase. In other words, the, the reason why we could control our costs is because we could design it to cost less. Interesting. And so if you designed it the right way, you could save money. And that's why that, that's the key to our construction company today, which is people hire us to do high-rise buildings because if they can get us involved in the design of the high-rise building, we can actually save a lot of money during the design process. And so they'll, some firms will hire us, you know, and be involved in that design and so on and so on, work with them for a year while they develop the plans. Because in a year when you develop the plans, it'll cost less if you were able to think about how you actually do things and what the techniques are and what the sequencing is and get that embedded into the design system. Where did the discipline come from, Stan? I mean, I'm talking about at NDC. Was it, do you have an engineer in-house or an architect in-house that, that had that discipline? Or you know, it's very funny. I, National was, a, you know, National, when I started with National, National had both a union and an open shop company in Pittsburgh, and so it was right. all union work and right. so on and so on. Right. But it was just sort of a philosophical attitude. And I, but I think, as you said, because they did a lot of the subsidized housing and so on and so on, once you finance that product, once you did that stuff, then it was just very important that you were able to deliver what you projected. Right. And because it took so long to get approved, you know, you were trying to get approved on numbers that were 10 months old by the time they, they, they finally approved them. Well, you really had to be able to design the building to that budget that you had promised because there was no way in that HUD process to go back and change the budget. And so I think that's where the, the discipline came from. So you probably had to divide the construction pieces into very fine pieces such that you could then define where can we find cost savings in this to make this, or how can we redesign this aspect of the property to make it more effective at a less, at less cost? That's true. And I, I think a lot of it is, I wouldn't make it sound more complicated than that. A lot of it is just philosophical. You have, to, you have to start with a system. You have to think about the building. Interesting. For example, we start with the building and we say, we're going to design, you know, since the structure is, you know, the biggest component of the building, the most expensive component, we're going to start by designing a really efficient structure. Mm-hmm. One that can be built efficiently, can be constructed efficiently because we're going to get the most savings out of doing a really efficient structure, knowing that that really efficient structure is going to, down the line, is going to create challenges as the architect tries to lay out the units in this really efficient structure that may, in fact, have a column where you'd like to have a bay window. Right. But 
good architects and the architects we were able to work with over time can figure out how to lay out great units within an efficient structure. But so we're going to start by designing the structure and then challenge the architect to lay out great units in that structure. And I'm just going to say it as opposed to the other way around, where the architect starts to say, my God, the, the building wants to have these great views and wants to have bay windows here. So he's going to start with the unit design and then build a structure to hold it up. And his building's going to cost more right. because it was just a, a way of thinking about it. You know, it's a way of thinking about airflow, you know, how you're going to get air into the building, how you're going to get air discharged from the building. And you have a, a philosophical system that you don't allow to get distracted as you're trying to solve individual little problems. And so, you know, that's all. So it really is just a, just having a, a view of the whole picture Right, as opposed right. to a view of the individual components. It's fascinating. When we first met, now you came to DC and I guess you were 26. So you were, it was what, about mid 1980s or so? Mm-hmm. That's and, right. And uh, I joined the Saw Company in 1986, my, 85 actually myself. Mm-hmm. And I think it was 86 or 87 when I yeah, met same you. Time. Same time. Because yep. you, uh, I remember you came into the office and uh, you had gotten uh, the Ward Monroe project under contract, as I recall, yep. on 14th Street and 14th and R, I think was the intersection. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. right that. And I think that, wasn't that your first deal in the, in, in the city or did you have another one? No, no, that really was the first deal, although uh, it's very funny just in terms of what we're talking about. That was a deal of the old kind of national development deal that was an affordable housing deal that was a renovation it was HUD financed you know Aetna was involved with some really secondary financing yeah but it was and it was really a charitable sort of financing almost whatever it was called it was not trying to make money and so I was involved in sort of executing that project but it really was done in sort of the old national way and that really didn't count as my first project because that wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. So, so the, the, uh, you know, the deal that counted as the first project in my, uh, my $100,000 12-month deal was uh, Ballston Place, which was a right. high-rise uh, market rate building. But let me say this. It was really good to have a little bit of activity and somebody else to talk to occasionally and so on in Washington as we were executing the, the, the Wardman deal and so on. And so that was the beginning of National. But then the first real deal I did on my own was the uh, an apartment building in, uh, at the Ballston, the brand new Ballston Metro Station back then. And uh, I the was equity financed. for that, I think, came from Aetna, as I recall, uh, didn't it? The equity for that one came from a company called Payne Weber Properties. Sure, which okay. Was, um, which was a, uh, a tax syndication group that was trying to figure out how to finance deals post-tax syndication <laughs> world. And they were good. But, you know, one of the guys who did that deal, Gary Gowdy, who ended up working for Aetna, is the guy who actually did that deal with me. And he ended up working for Aetna and then UBS. And, and I did business with him until he retired two years ago. So, you know, 35 years, we did an awful lot of work together. Exactly. Sure. But the Aetna relationship did introduce me to the guys who, the whole group over there, which was sort of their separate account business and their, they had a big commingled fund right. that uh, was an open-ended fund and their ambition was to create inflation plus four. So what they would tell their investors is, we'll get you inflation plus four. Now, back then, inflation was a big deal. So that, that didn't mean five like it does today. That meant 10. 
or 12 because inflation was six or eight percent a year. Yep. But, but their strategy was inflation plus four, and they really wanted to own big assets. And we philosophically were denominator driven, right? We were going to deliver these buildings at a really efficient cost basis. And by delivering at a really efficient cost basis, we were going to then be able to create value over the course of time because our denominator was simply going to be lower than, than the next guy. And so we began to work with them. You know, we felt very strongly that we wanted to own real estate. We were never going to merchant build. And we wanted to take all of our sweat equity and otherwise and invest it in a very large ownership stake in these deals where we weren't behind an IRR and we weren't going to get crushed and so on. And not all deals worked out that way. But philosophically, those guys at Aetna back in the day, and then it became Altus and Allegis, and then eventually it became UBS. But it was always the same group of people. And we philosophically got along on that basis, that if we could deliver the product at the right number, that we could be a 50-50 partner after we got that sort of uh, inflation plus four hurdle. And we built an awful lot of real estate with those guys in that structure over the next 30 years. So we did uh, many, many deals with Aetna slash UBS, as as it turned out to be. Yeah. So you came at it from the affordable housing realm, but it sounds like that that project became more market rate oriented at that point, right? Yeah, yeah, it did. And uh, well, I'm going to say the the Boston Place deal, which was my first real deal, that was a 100% market deal. and yeah, so I say the affordable piece that was sort of the roots of national development, that never, you know, that I, I never, I was never personally really in that business. It was tangential to something I was doing. And some of those relationships started there. But as I said, that's not what National wanted me to do, Seymour Baskin. He wanted me to figure out how to do conventionally financed, non-syndicated market rate housing. So the syndication business, you came here then right as that law changed. So the syndication business was out of whack at that moment. Right. So they wanted you to do, to find institutional partners to do deals, to do development deals. Okay. Got it. Got it. All right. And so you were with uh, NDC for how long then uh, as you came here? So I I was there. We we built a little division and we built a little operation down here. We had... uh, 30 or 40 people. And we did, uh, and I stayed with them until about 1990. And then, you know, we did all sorts of things. So National did, National was really, a, as I said, National's big strength was its construction capabilities. Mm-hmm. And so we did all sorts of stuff. I was doing what I liked with some of these uh, high-rise apartment buildings. We did a few of those, but we also did some office. We did some assisted living uh, as a developer, not as a you know, we developed a whole bunch of stuff. So we had all different product types. And National was a great company in the sense that they let us go. We partnered those. I had to find my own partners and, and so on and so on. But to the extent I did, National would support it. And by 1990, we had an office in Georgetown in a building that I built. I had 35 or 40 people. We had half a dozen deals under construction. It was fantastic. But the world was really coming to an end, 88, 89, 90. In terms of the, just the tax syndication piece of the business going away, sort of made all of our real estate overvalued and sort of made the market overbuilt in almost every respect. And so in 1990, I was, I was tasked with laying everybody off, which I, oh, I, I did. I took a lot of my, some of my 
best people and put them on sites. In other words, if I really liked you, I would get you a job on a site as the manager of the building or as a, if you were a great construction superintendent, you ended up being the maintenance director in some project because I could at least get you a paycheck, mm-hmm. right? But the world was really coming to an end in real estate. So by, by 1991, there was down to just uh, two or three of us left in the office and then they fired us. So 1991 is when they sort of cut us loose from national and it's because they were just closing the office because there really wasn't any real estate to do. So those people that I had, so the people that, uh, that were left, so Clark and Patty are still my partners today. They, they, we've been together the whole time. And, and mm-hmm. Alice and Michael, who I put out on job sites and so on and so on, they came back to Paradigm you know, over the course of the next couple of years. And you know, our whole team grew out of that starting point. But that starting point was really at the bottom of the, from a market. Did you have did you have assets at that time that you managed, or what, what was we, going on? We took no assets with us. We didn't have any assets. They owed me some money, uh, which they wouldn't pay me. So they they gave me my quote deals under development, which meant you know the things we were working on, but we didn't actually own any of them. And so we really didn't start with any of those assets at all. As it turned out, we got started. The bankruptcy court, you know, bankruptcy court was busy back then. Uh, (laughs) And that's as a great piece of fortune. But I say this, I didn't have any problems either. I didn't have any assets. And you didn't have any assets and you didn't have any problems. You know, if you had real estate assets, you had problems. And so at that point in the cycle, I was really a guy that sort of knew how to build buildings and knew about real estate, knew how to do big projects. And I didn't have any actual problems. And so uh, my first, our first work was we got appointed as the emergency receiver in a bunch of different deals mm-hmm. by the federal bankruptcy court. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they paid us about $2 an hour to uh, <laughs> manage these bankrupt real estate deals. Uh-huh. But they really did provide a little coverage of the overhead for us. And then... I was very fortunate in one of the deals that we had been working on with National is I got the pension fund of the state of Hawaii to finance a new project. So they financed my first real deal under Paradigm, which was an apartment building and courthouse. So they were willing to do that. We got a Japanese firm called Obiashi to joint venture our construction company, right? Because we did big work and we had to be able to bond big work when we had mm-hmm. money. And so we got Obiashi to partner with us so that we could bond those jobs. And we started doing real construction, a lot of third-party construction because we were bondable and we knew how to do it. And we were off. And all those deals that you did back then in the early 90s were fantastic deals because nobody was doing anything. And the costs were low and the market was great. But getting out of it. And then uh, we were very fortunate in being able to buy Obiashi out. We, we never let anybody, we never took a partner into our main company except Obiashi. And we had a deal to buy them out in three years if we were able to. And, and we, we were able to. And, and so that was a sort of a transitionary relationship, but it worked out very well for us. So your current, we, we talked about it up front, but I want to get into it a little more detail now. You've got three, sounds like you have three profit centers for the company, mm-hmm. development, construction, and property management. And it sounded like even at that time, you were going along that path. You were yeah. taking assignments in each of those buckets, it sounded like. Uh, that, that's, that's exactly right. The development business, you know, we knew, I knew from my days at National that the 
you know, the fee business, the development, the merchant build piece of it, you know, is a real treadmill. And so when we switched into the world of paradigm, we really wanted to make sure that we had all three legs of those stool. And we never wanted to be in a position where we were going to, or where we had to do development deals in order to generate fees to cover right. overhead. So right. our strategy from the beginning was to grow those, those other profit centers sufficiently so the development company could focus on fewer deals, bigger deals, and deals that we intended to hold. And so that's always been our philosophy, which we don't do very many deals as a development company. We, generally speaking, hold everything we build, which means that our capital is really being focused on those deals that we're doing because we want to own enough of those deals so that it's worth our while. So we're only going to do a few deals. Obviously, early on, we fought very hard to be at 50%. You know, a lot of the stuff we're doing now, John, we do all ourselves. So we, we don't have partners, but, but it's part of that same philosophy. That's great. So it sounded like it's really a management of risk standpoint then for you is to be able to have the ongoing revenue from the construction and property management businesses that then allow you to have the seed capital to do the development deals to some extent. That, that's exactly right. No, that, that's exactly right. Try to keep our overhead so it's not going to drive us to do other things and take our capital and put it into our assets that we intend to own. So going forward today, you're, you're doing things, uh, you're internally raising capital then in essence to do your joint, you do your new development projects or do you have partners <laughs> still going forward? We have lots of partners we have lots of partners. The partners that are our best partners are the partners who are like us. So in other words, we find that individuals or, or families who are taxable are great partners, and we've got a bunch of them. You know, so people who have sort of the same philosophical approach, which is they intend to hold the real estate, they like the sheltered cash flow, and they want to hold real estate for the long term and create value for their families. And so I've got a bunch of those partners. I still have a lot of institutional partners. Some of them are historic and, and otherwise. But the reality is that for the most part, I mean, UBS was a UBS, and I say UBS was Aetna going to UBS, you know, was unique in that they actually had the capacity to hold assets for 20 years or 25 right. years. And uh, most of the capital that is available to real estate now has a much shorter time period. Right. And we just hate to be sort of trapped in a corner that makes us either sell an asset or in some cases we bought those those kind of partners out but it never is that it never feels that great for the developer partner to be buying out the capital partner in year 5 or year 7 or whatever it is it's fine we can do it but you know their their return expectations are just such that they cannot hold long term because right. the yield goes down with the passage of time right exactly so, so your your construction business is Probably more than 50 percent third party, I assume. Yeah, it's almost nine. It's eighty to ninety percent third party. Almost uh, all the, the construction work is third party. Right. It's hard. So you, do, you do construction work for a lot of your competitors on the development side. So how do you convince them of that? Of that? You know, geez, Dan, you're now inside my business. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but you know, and it, it is funny. Uh, although I, I think the reason why we have worked with a lot of our competitors on doing construction is because we can help them design it so it costs less. Right. <laughs> and, and the reality sure. is that for most of them are pragmatic. They know that I'm not, they're not really bumping heads with me on every deal because I don't do very many development deals. And 
at the end of the day, when they're trying to get a big project started or so on and so on, they really want to get all the good ideas and they want to produce it, produce it for the lowest cost. Mm-hmm. And, and we think we can deliver real value in that regard. And so that's why I say, if we did all, we did a lot of work for Archstone back when Archstone was Archstone and we built mm-hmm. for Avalon and we built for other firms that have really, they're great development companies. But when they get into the nuances of building high-rise buildings in urban areas, we hope we can convince them, and I think we can convince them, that we can just lend value to their process just for the reasons I talked to, because philosophically, we're going to help them. They make every decision, but philosophically, as they make their decision about whether they want to do this mechanical system or that one, et cetera, et cetera, we can really talk to them about what that's going to mean in terms of the total project costs at the end of the day and then they've got to make their decision but those guys understand that if they you know they build a product that costs twenty five thousand dollars more a unit than they wanted it just affects their yield forever they're happy to pay us a little fee they're going to pay somebody the fee anyway but you know it's not as though uh, having us involved in the construction that's always after they own the land anyway so even if they were competing with me to buy the land now they own <laughs> right. So uh, it doesn't yeah. matter. But, so you get another bite at the apple, in essence. Well, you know, some some people are uncomfortable by that, and I I get it. So it's not for everybody. You know, we don't work for a million guys as a, as a contractor. Right. We, well, we work for the guys we think we can get along with, and and right. construction business is hard, really hard. Yeah. As I tell my construction guys all the time, if if you can make any money in the construction business, you pretty much earned it. You There's know, a lot of risk in that business, and, and managing that risk is is challenging. There's no doubt about it. The other th- and the property management. What's what's your ratio there on ownership and and third party? So we own most of our the stuff we manage. So we have a we have some units we manage a a, a few thousand units mm-hmm. that we would manage for third parties. But almost all the third parties we manage for are people who are otherwise partners with us. Some of those families I talked about and otherwise who are happy to have a manager that will manage like an owner. And so we're not the cheapest management company in the world because we, we really manage like we own the property mm-hmm. and we care a lot about the assets and we care a lot about creating community and value over the long haul. And that works really well for some owners, but we're not out competing. You know, we're not competing on, on the, the fee we're going to charge. We're not out competing on some of those things to try to gain management. We're, we're happy to compete on total expenses because we think we can be very efficient. But, you know, the management business today is, is really a, you know, third-party management business is really a volume business. And everybody involved just has to grow yep. a lot, and do a lot of work. And, and uh, we just think a lot of the quality gets lost as you do that. It's interesting. Uh, your business lines are very similar to one of your biggest competitors and mm-hmm. and people in the market that uh, someone who I've interviewed and I actually revert referred you to, to, to listen to before this and that's uh, Tom Bazzuto of uh, sure. Bazzuto companies and you're all you're all in the same business mm-hmm. business lines that he is but it hit the evolution of his companies a lot different than yours and that's why it's interesting to hear the differences uh, his being yeah. more you know, garden oriented and coming out of the certification business and, and developing a, a key joint venture partner to go forward on development. But they were focused on the development business mostly until 
they grew to the point where they could start a construction business and build their property. And then they went into the property management business, third party, in a huge way, and now sure. nationally and, of course, grown nationally. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to, to compare the two uh, orientations. Yours is, comes more from, it seems to me, more from a construction perspective and vertical construction as opposed to the, to the garden land development type uh, business in a way. So it's interesting. No, I, I, I think that's right. Uh, Tom's a good friend and, and I've known Tom. Um, Tom and I, back when he was starting his company and right. he, he had just started his company and I was just about to start mine. I didn't know I was just about to start mine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. But we, right. We, would have, we would have breakfast once a month and talk. I think I have the greatest respect for him and his company and, and for Toby, who's done a great job since and, and all the rest. But you're right. We really have grown very differently. So let's, uh, let's shift gears now, uh, Stan, into uh, the markets. Clearly, the D.C. market's evolved considerably since you first moved here. What trends have most intrigued you, and uh, will they remain in place in, in the upcoming post-COVID-19 environment? Yeah, it's a really great question. You know, I think we have always been, I've always been sort of a fan of the transit-oriented, walkable, even before it was fashionable you know, this sort of urban lifestyle that our buildings provide. And, you know, I think as Washington has grown, we've been very fortunate in that a lot of that has been proven, you know, to have, have a lot of value, those, those kind of communities in this market. You know, my suspicion is it will stay that young people and people want to be in cities, they want to be around other people, they want to be able to walk out and do things. This kind of high-rise product and so on is I'm still a big believer and we're a big believer in owning it. And, and, you know, we like, um, we like that aspect of it. You know, I think as the road congestion, we always joke that, you know, we're, we're against building new roads most places because road congestion hurts, helps us, you know, makes people comfortable paying a little bit more to live on the, the transit lines and so on. You know, it's a little easier to be green in these high rise buildings, you know, which is a very fashionable thing that people care about, which is, you know, living in, in green buildings and buildings that are energy efficient and so on, so on. So we, we sort of like all that. And I, as I said earlier, I don't really believe that this COVID thing is going to change that philosophically. Although I do think, you know, do we have to include little office nooks in all of our buildings because people are going to get comfortable working from home, you know, blah, blah, blah. I think that those, those things are, are, are worth thinking about. We were lucky and we decided some years ago not to get involved in sort of the micro apartments with the big common areas and so on. I'm not sure that was a bad decision. I think the bigger units, you know, as people spend more time at home and so on and so on, they they like the additional square footage. We're pretty good with that. And then we're worried philosophically about how people think about affordable housing, how people think about whether the government should be involved in setting rents and and those sorts of things. And so we worry about those sorts of things when we think about markets going forward. Well, housing demand is going to be unabated going forward. And, you know, of all the product sectors in real estate, it's the most basic and fundamental need of human beings. It's it's a roof over your head and where to live. You know, the long-term viability of 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 the apartment sector, in my view, is very green light. So the question is, Will the single-family home business evolve to be more rental going forward? Will this pandemic cause more volatility 
in ownership of real estate as a, instead of renting, that could affect the multifamily space going forward a little bit. I, um, I agree with that. So in development projects that you manage, how, what are the best ways to mitigate risk, in your opinion? How do you look at that? that well, let me say leverage is risk. And so we think philosophically we're long-term guys. So we think philosophically we want to be in the right locations. We, want, we believe in the growth in rents fundamentally over the course of time and the, the attractiveness, or let me say the relative attractiveness of if you pick the right location, you build the right product. And so therefore, if you believe that, then you, you say, fine, you're going to be all right over time. Well, then where people get in trouble is things that happen in the short run, you know, values go up and down and how are you financed and when do you have to refinance and those sorts of things. Philosophically, therefore, we've, we really shy away from taking interest rate risks. So we almost always lock in fixed interest rate for a long period of time. Even on construction projects, we typically do our construction projects with construction perm loans of a duration of 12 years or something like that. So we're really trying to fix our interest rate for a long period of time on the way in, we pay a premium for that because, and that's from my experience in the early 80s, when prime rates goes to 21%, nobody's smart enough to keep their real estate. And <laughs> not, nothing, yeah. nothing works in that world. So I've always been afraid of that. So we've always stuck to really uh, fixed interest rates. That means that you have to put more capital in because there's more equity. Well, lower leverage is also protection against volatility. So that there's no magic to that, but if you start down that track, you will determine that you can't do very many deals, right. <laughs> which is what, exactly. what we determine. As you put more equity into each one, as you hedge off some of those risks you're worried about, what you give up is being able to do six or eight deals at a time or stuff like that. And that's something that we accepted very early on that we were going to do that. So in 2009, for example, when the, the world came to an end briefly, I'll tell you a quick story. So I, I was buying a building at that time. It was a, a Northwest Mutual Life was selling a building down in Pentagon, and I ended up putting it on a contract. And I, of course, thought it was a great acquisition price, and thought you know it was really good because you know the, the markets were distressed, and sure. we part partnered with UBS in that. And I came in and told my partner, I said, you know, wow, here's this deal. We, we're going to we're going to do it this number. And, and Clark said to me, he said, well, Stan, that's great. He said, that, he said, it's great. I'm in. We, we should do it. He said, but when you go home tonight, don't think about what everything else is we own is worth based upon what you just paid for that. <laughs> and, and he was really right because, you know, if we really thought about what I was paying per unit for new high, or for relatively new, for 10-year-old high-rise product on a metro station in Northern Virginia. And if I applied that to the value and said that was the value of everything else I own, I was probably insolvent um, wow. because the values had declined so much. But because all those other assets we owned were owned with fixed rate interest, mm -hmm. you know, committed two years before, it didn't matter. I didn't have to sell any of the cash flow didn't really change, no. and the you know therefore the, the cash flow didn't really change, and I was able to make all my debt service, and I didn't have any maturities coming due, and so we had the capacity to take advantage of what was going on in the market 
irrespective of, of marking the value of all of our assets to market every day. And so I tell that story only because that's really our, been our philosophy of risk mitigation. We manage our maturities, so we never have more than you know, one or two maturities in any given year. We fix our interest rates, and we try to take a lot of the risk of the business off the table in that way. Let's talk about your, your people a little bit. And when you're interviewing and talking to prospective employees, what do you look for in a person to, when you're hiring, Stan? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. You know, are, are we, generally speaking, just looking for integrity and hard work? You know, those are really the principles. We feel like we can teach people the business even. I mean, it's nice to have people that know about the business, but what we really want them to come into the company with is a real sense of integrity and hard work and people who really want to find a place where they're, they're going to be happy over the long term. And we've got a lot of uh, people here who've been with us a very long time. We really try to create an environment where you can be successful. And we're just looking for that right chemistry, cultural fit to the organization, sort of like the Steelers used to say back in the day, you know, pick the best available player and then worry about where he plays later. <laughs> and that's yeah. really what we're trying to do. We're just trying to get what we think are really good people that we want to work with. And, and then we'll, we'll work out the details. Do you have an acid test for figuring out, you know, what somebody brings to the table from an integrity standpoint of, and, uh, and character? <laughs> I, I wish I your did. Mind? I um, wish I did. And, and, you know, we had talked about you know, I wish there was a way to know, but let me say this. What, what, what is for sure true is you know when you got it wrong. Right. And right. when you get it, when you, when you see evidence that you got it wrong, then you just have to move quickly. Be, you have to be smart enough to say, okay, well, that, that's fine. And maybe it, maybe it was really, maybe accounted for a lot in a particular situation. Maybe it didn't, but it isn't going to work over time. And so you really have to be at a part ways quickly when, if, you, if you find yourself in that situation. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to say my intuition is always right. It's just not. But when I'm wrong, I, I, I'm able to fess up. and <laughs> I misjudge this person and we got to do something else. Well, um, based on the success of your company, you've obviously made better bets than, than, than poorer yeah. bets over time, obviously. <laughs> That's great. What are your life priorities, Dan? among family, work, and giving back. Now, I'm very lucky, and I, I should have said this before, just talking about people for a quick second. It would, I'd be really remiss if I didn't talk about my partners. You know, I started Paradigm with really five other people. Clark Ewart, who ran development back then, he runs yes. construction now. We had a guy who ran construction who retired 10 years ago, and Clark moved over to do that. I had Michael Bushkoff and Alice Billy, who, who run the property management company. Patty Smith, who now is the only employee of the holding company technically, but she's been my CFO for since I was a puppy. That group of people were all with me at national development. So if I go clear back to national development, they were all there then. Mm-hmm. When, we, when we started the company in 1991, they weren't all here because as I said, some of them I put out on sites, but within a year or two, we were all here together. We're all still here. Everybody is still working 30 years later which is a, a miracle. You know, it's like being married to five people over that period of time. But, but the reality is that it's the great, it's the great cultural blessing of, of my life, which is that, you know, I get to work with people I trust, who have integrity, who, who work hard, 
every they complement each other and the and your weaknesses as well. So oh, they, exactly. Of course. Yeah. Uh, of course. I mean, you couldn't possibly do it. Nobody's smart enough to do it all themselves. Maybe some right. people are, but but I'm certainly not. And so we are, you know. And then, then we say, and thirty years is a long time. I mean, if anybody has a a thirty year old relationship, you know that things change. Oh, you know, that's amazing, um, actually. People go through their own changes in their own life, and they have children, and they get divorced, and they do all these different things. But to be able to make allowances for one another during that time period is the big blessing. And I think it really the key of paradigm, and now really the challenge of paradigm, which is how do we, all of us have been here 30 years, that whole group of people. And so we really are trying hard to bring on the next group of people, because it's not like you're replacing one person. It's like you're really trying to bring in a whole Next generation. Next generation. And so, and that brings me to your question, which is, so we, in the last year or two, we actually, all of us took all of those partnership interests we had accumulated over all those years and ownership in the operating companies and so on. And we all contributed them all back into a holding company, which is a pretty amazing thing that that group of people would still feel sort of like getting remarried. <laughs> after all that time, <laughs> that you, you still feel good enough about the, the enterprise, tried to put it all into one enterprise, which then can be structured a little differently and can then set up the various companies to be a little more independent of one another. And then we're working very hard to cultivate a group of leaders to run those companies, which we've mostly done. I mean, most of those companies are being run by other people now, and we're in more of a uh, of an oversight role, which is where I started with this whole thing. And so, you know, from a business standpoint, that's what we're doing. I still like the real estate business. I'm still spending day to day, some days, you know, working on development deals or refinancings or something. But business wise, that's really evolved. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like what you've created there is like a family office environment there. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And correct. And and the, and the goal was because we all felt that we would do better for our families in the long mm-hmm. run right. if they had a business enterprise yeah. to be in charge of as opposed to a, a big pile of money or a bunch of individual assets or something like that. And so that's really what we're trying to do. So yeah. uh, separate from that, you have your own family, of course. I have two daughters. Uh, one's that's uh, home because she got thrown out of college with everybody else with the COVID thing. So she's a senior. She'll be graduating and, a, and an older daughter who's... Uh, Living downtown, she's a marine biologist and uh-huh. uh, <laughs> doing whatever that means in Washington, D.C., which makes, and so she's saving the world's fish from uh-huh. us as she is right. Uh, right. Uh, and, and doing the right thing. So uh, we don't have any children of the principles of those five principles. There are no children in the business. So we really are cultivating the next generation without maybe the burden or maybe the opportunity. We'll see. I mean, you know, it's a long race as to whether kids come back in the business over the course of time. But at this point, we don't, we don't have anybody in the business. And we're working our way, we're working our way through that. You okay. spend time teaching as well. I do. So, I, yeah. I do. We're very involved. My wife and I are both very involved in education. We, we, uh, I teach at GW. As I said, I chair the board of my college. She and I started a series of charter schools in the District of Columbia called Rocket Ship Charter Schools, which is... Uh, which uh, she uh, chairs the board there. But th- that's a primary school. We got one in Ward 8, one in Ward 7, and we're going to open one this fall in Ward 5. So these are really targeted at the most disadvantaged kids in the, in the district. They're great schools. They're What's big. your mission there, out of curiosity? Uh, 
our mission, not to be too simplistic, but our mission is to get fifth graders, right? We're going preschool through fifth grade, and we're trying to produce fifth graders that can read and do math at grade level. And I don't want to make it sound like that's, boy, that's really an elementary goal. You're dealing with neighborhoods where less than 10% of the kids can do that. And so our goal is to go to these kids in those neighborhoods and give them a fighting chance to be successful in middle school. How do you manage the post-school environment for them? We, we do our best. I mean, we feed them, right? right. So we right. feed them free meals which is helps them with their post-school environment. We have a long school day, which helps them a little bit as well. But these kids are, we don't expect any homework and da-da-da. You got to make some allowances for the worlds that these kids live in. Yeah. But the reality is there's only, you know, and I don't mean to be, and my wife would say this much better, but, you know, I'm not, the ambition of improving their family lives and improving their, you know, putting a father in the household. And, you know, there's lots of ambitions we can have for these kids, but we can't do any of them. But right. what we can do is we can have them able to read and able to do math, which will give them a chance as a middle schooler to be successful and on the steps go. But if you're producing fifth graders that can't read, they virtually have no shot in life at all. And so our mission is really to just address that primary school problem, which is getting these kids mm-hmm. to be able to read and do math and to like learning at those, uh, those early ages. And so we have, uh, as I said, we're going to open our third schools. They're big, they're ground up schools. We build them. Uh, so you must have a whole philosophy on finding teachers that, that are able to, to work with kids on a very specialized basis. And I assume your teacher student ratio is pretty low to be able to do that. It's actually, yeah, it's actually not. It's funny, John, I mean, you know, like, you get me out of my element here because I don't, I, I have nothing to do with hiring teachers, but we do have a rocket ship schools, California-based school. They do have a philosophical attitude about how they go about hiring teachers and training teachers mm-hmm. and lots of stuff about education that you would think is common sense were it related to any other business. But to a large degree, you know, education is still mostly being done the way it was done 100 years ago. The industrial way. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so we, we use a lot of... Uh, technology in the classroom, and we really seek out teachers who really want to be successful in teaching the kids. Great. But our student-teacher ratio is not particularly low, or there's nothing crazy like that. We really are, and I'd say this is true of the whole charter school movement in the district, which is there's an awful lot of people who have demonstrated that they can do this. They can teach these kids, and uh, it really is a shame Sometimes that we don't do a better job of it as a society as a whole because there's still an awful lot of kids who, who aren't going to make that grade. And so we're doing our part. Anyway, that's all. There's a lot of education in our world. My wife and I, we're both very fortunate because of our education opportunities. And that's what we, we, we do in our spare Was time. she trained as an educator, your wife? She's not. She's not. She, she went to, she, we met in college. She's a health policy person. We both just sort of began to care about what we could, we, we wanted to focus on something where we could make a real difference in education. That's great. That's encouraging, Stan. If you were uh, 25 years old today and uh, you were looking at the mirror, what would you tell yourself based on the knowledge you have, but putting yourself in your 25-year-old body, what yeah. would you tell yourself today? Well, <laughs> well, well, I would tell you, well when I was 25, I, 
I, uh, and 25 is, is, is young, but you know, you have to be willing to take a chance to get what you really want. Uh-huh. And so as you're, you're young and you're thinking about the things you're doing, there's always a lot of strategery and a lot of advice you get and all the rest of that stuff. What I would tell those young people is not to be afraid to take a chance to get what it is you're really after. And often these kids know what they're after, but they're so conscious of not making a mistake as they, as they step along the way that they sometimes hesitate to go for what they really need to do. And, and so that would be my, my advice to myself is just, just take the chance. You may not be successful, but those learning experiences from not being successful in that first try just make you stronger the second try. But that's not even what you got to think about. You just got to take a chance to get what you want. You know what you want? You got to take a chance to get it. That's great. So if you could post a statement on a bull billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at the Capitol Beltway, you know, maybe you'd get a few politicians in there. I'd, I might have some advice for them. I'd have to change it every day. Yeah, I'm not, that's a good, yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, I don't know that I, I can synopsize, you know, I think, self-reliance and hard work and integrity, those sort of principles are things you would like to be able to, you'd like to be able to reassure people. I'd like to be able to reassure people that, you know, you can be successful. You don't have to be the smartest guy in the world. You don't have to have families in the business. You don't have to, you know, you can just do it the old fashioned way in America. You can just work really hard and make good decisions and you can be successful. And I think sometimes we, we want to believe that it's all rigged somehow and, you know, and so on and so on. And the, the number one encouragement I'd give people is that's just not true. You know, you, you hear about that once in a while. And, you know, I've certainly heard about things over the course of my career. But for the most part, the people who've been successful that I've run across have done it just by working hard in an honest way. Well, Stan, on that note, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. We'll, uh, we'll see you down the road. Thank All right. You. Thank you. I appreciate thank you. it. Thank you.